This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of O Ship. This week, I have another really, really special guest in, a gentleman called Bonin Bow. Now, some of you may have heard of Bonin uh, through his speaking engagements, through his TV show that he had on CNBC with LeBron James called Cleveland Hustles, or some of you may know him from his investing, things like Bonin Ventures or Lockstep Ventures, or you may know him from some of his notable roles, things like the chief digital officer at Pepsi, the chief media and e-com officer at Mondelez. He was the chief growth officer at Sundial at one point, and most recently has been the chief growth officer of an app called Triller that if you haven't seen it, is really, really, really cool. Now, to say this guy's been around the block, I think would be a little bit of an understatement. And he and I are both really passionate about a subject around talent and retaining and attracting and developing great talent, especially in this really interesting, let's call it, uh, environment that we are today. So today you're going to hear us share our opinions on what developing exclusive talent is all about, learn some of the lessons that Bonin's picked up along the way, and we may even hear an O-Ship story or two. And with that, here we go with another week of O-Ship. Greetings, sir. Great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. I was just saying you, it's, you're almost in Miami. I see you be coming down to Art Basel. It's ironic that we would be uh, this close to each other, and yet again, here we are in video. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the last time we were together in Miami was, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a tough time. So let's, uh, you know, I don't know if Miami's ready for a redo yet. <laughs> They're not ready for a ready for repeat. Fair enough. You, at least we can hide it in the the you know the the shuffle that is uh, Art Art Basel. Well, I know I know you're gonna have a great uh, great time, and I know you know it's a birthday weekend for you. So have an awesome one on us. And in the meantime, let's have some great conversation. That I think some other folks can enjoy. So again, I I tried to give you a, a, my my fair shake of a great intro, but I, I'd love to you know for those uh, the audience that don't know you. I'd love to have you explain a little bit more around some of the things that you're you're focused on uh, these days. Yeah, I think really a huge focus has been Lockstep Ventures, and just for everybody, a good friend of mine. And I, you know, it's interesting. You you talk. We're going to talk about career and talent, and you know, I learned so much on my journey and kind of my story. I think is uh, one that's relatively unique if you really think about. The statistics. So I was born in New York, born and raised. My parents separated when I was in third grade. My dad was a, I would say, starving artist, but a struggling photographer. Um, and that's a whole different story, which kind of ties into lockstep in the sense of being a black photographer in the early 70s, late 80s was not very <laughs> easy uh in new york in fact he would bring his book in and he specialized in uh he shot mostly black and white and uh, you know we just digitized a half a million of his photographs after 60 year career school amazing but his real commercial specialty was special effects and he created 
effects and techniques that had never been seen before or done before. And he would drop his book off. And I remember being a little kid on the back of his bicycle and he would drop his book off uh, at art directors, Ogilvy, you know, JWT, you name it. And they would say, there's no way this is your work, right? There's no way that a black photographer could have done that. So I, there's a little bit of that background in there. And then my parents separated. My mom moves uptown. We end up living with our grandma, our grandmother because she has no money. Uh, we're on welfare. She somehow gets an apartment and then kind of worked her way back up uh, to being able to just manage a two-kid house, single-parent mom. And this is Harlem in the mid-'80s, which is the era of the crack epidemic. And statistically, as a young Black male, most of them didn't make it out of that area. And to, you know, and even have a chance to achieve, I feel like some of the things that I've been lucky enough to have a chance to achieve. So I think that, you know, there's that backdrop. And, and then as we talk about career, we can go into some other things. But what is important to me about Lockstep is Michael Loeb, who's a good friend, who's the reason why I actually quit Mondelez, um, and we can talk about that as well, called me after George Floyd, and he said, Bonin, and we co-invest in a lot of things, and for those who don't know who Michael Loeb is, Loeb Enterprises, if you've ever seen that show Billions, the ha- Hamptons house is his house. So, you know, I'm, I'm always like, Michael, I'm not impressed when your show, when your house is in trillions, then call me, everybody's got a billion. But, um, so he called me and he said, what's going on, man? He's like, just help me. And, you know, I explained my, my experience growing up, uh, not just as a young black male in, in New York or in inner city, if you want to call it that, but even as a, a black executive, I remember I used to teach at NYU. I taught there for five years while I was building a couple of the digital agencies. And I used to come outside full suit on, try to hail a cab and cabs would pass by me. In fact, I used to chase cabs down because, you know, they just wouldn't stop for me. And then I remember being in situations where when I walk in the room, there's no way that I'm the guy, right? There's no way I, I, I won't share names, but we were in a country that has a billion people and we were doing an agency review and the largest agency, independently held agency uh, CEO we're going in and I have this guy, Giuseppe, who's a very beautiful Catalonian man. So, you know, I would be more attracted to him maybe than me. But he, uh, um, the head of the agency walked right up to Giuseppe and said, Bon, and it's great to meet you. Because in his mind, there was no way. So in the backdrop of that, I explained kind of that situation to Michael and just really said, you know, the real challenge that people are talking about, that the community understands, but maybe aren't being talked about is the systemic impact that certain areas of the world have on the black and minority communities. And so he's like, well, let's start investing in African-Americans, Bonnie, let's go. And I was like, yes, I agree. But I had two scotches because it's been a long, <laughs> let me call you back in the morning. <laughs> back, And I said, you know, 100% we should focus on black founders, but let's focus on four areas that if we can solve these challenges, we can have true systemic impact that can change the wealth gap. And that's the crazy thing is when you look at the wealth gap, you know, the difference between the average income of a, of a black family versus, you know, a white family is 10x. And then less than 1% of wow. investment goes into black founders. But we wanted to focus on four areas, which is education reform, criminal justice reform, healthcare outcomes, and financial literacy. If you can really create viable, economically successful businesses that tackle those challenges, then you can have true systemic impact over time. And so that's what Lockstep does. And so we're a $50 million fund, and that's what we invest in. And it's not just about investing in entrepreneurs on the coast. It's about everybody in the middle, because that's where most of these type of entrepreneurs exist, and that's where there is no funding. And more important than that is that we're not looking for outsized returns. We are looking for returns, right? 100% for all of our LPs uh, and big returns, but we don't have to, we're, we're, we're betting on businesses that might not be a hundred X, 
but we might be able to get 20, 25x because we know that, you know, if we provide the nurturing in the care and feeding, which is the model that both Bonin Ventures and Loeb Enterprises has, then we can change the economic success or the ratio of success from two and 20, which most people tell you in reality is probably like one in 20 uh, to something a lot more, in which case we can return a fund that also has impact. And that's kind of what I'm passionate about. I love that. First of all, you know, just even at the beginning of that story, what you're saying about your your dad kind of driving, you know, riding around trying to show people his book and people just not believing it's him, just stuff like that just is upsetting and pisses me off at the same time. So, uh, you know, I think the, the thing that I took away or one of the things I took away from this, I think is very relevant to today's theme is that trying to help people, uh, you know, shift up their position in life has a lot to do with nurturing talent. And nurturing the the skills that maybe either people don't have, or helping them develop the ones that they do have, and just bringing them to the forefront and really helping them to be exceptional at that. So I'd love to kind of dive into that that theme, and I definitely want to head back into to lockstep and some of the work you're doing there as well. You mentioned this concept about ex- exclusive talent. What does that mean to you? Well, you know, it's kind of like exceptional talent, talent that has understood that they have to create a true path for their career. Look, I feel very lucky and blessed to have had the opportunity and be in the place where I'm at. And I had a lot of people who helped me on that journey, who taught me a lot of things that, you know, I was lucky enough to have them teach me at a relatively young age. So by 36, I was the youngest ranking C-level executive in a Fortune 50 at the time. And that's, you know, I'm blessed, but there was a lot of steps and missteps and learnings along that journey. And about 10 years ago, I started really thinking about talent. And I, I used to do a presentation called Talent is the New Black. And I started with a woman named Karen Solomon, a guy named Van Breen, a company called Brand U, which was a talent accelerator. And when I would open up, my core message would be very simple, which is, first of all, it was for high potential because there tends to be a challenge for high potentials, but its application is across the board. If I ask you for a plan for your product or service, you would probably break out a 50-page PowerPoint. But if I ask you for the plan for your career, zero. And the reality is, is that there are more elite athletes in the world than there are vice presidents at Fortune 1000. So if you think it's hard to be LeBron, it's impossible to be Indra, who was, you know, CEO of PepsiCo. And the reality is, is that everybody walks into these organizations with a dream of being a CEO, a dream of being a CFO, but they don't get there because they don't have a plan. And the walls of these organizations are littered with people who had those same dreams, but never had a plan to accomplish it. So the single most important thing that talent can do is to really step back and think about their career as they would this product or service that they market. And how do they plan to where they want to be? And then how do you check if you're reaching those goals on a continual basis? And that's what most people don't do. And so, and I know that sounds kind of aha uh-huh, or like basic, but that is, it is that simple. I think you're right. I, if I was just sitting here thinking of myself, I can't think of a single person that, uh, you know, I actually a fan of like putting, putting strategies into, you know, coherent decks to just make sure that we can get alignment and get people behind things. You know, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone kind of saying, look, I'm, I, you know, they have maybe something in their head, but no one ever is thought, very few people are very thoughtful enough to put an actual plan down for their career. I can't help but actually think about I just you know, finished watching that King Richard film with the, you know, uh, Serena Venus Williams' father and how I had the 78-page plan for their, uh, you know, their career. And it sounds kind of kooky at the same time, though, but 
you can't get to these levels of great, incredible success like you're describing, especially in the corporate world, without being that thoughtful about it, perhaps. It's not just corporate. It's, it's, it's anything, right? I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you have a plan for your business. Then that is the representation of you because you're the sole owner or driver of it. But the reality is, is look, basic stuff. So how many people, you know, every single person, I wish we were in a room and I'd get people to raise their head, their hands. Most people don't want to talk to the HR person. It's like the HR person is the biggest nightmare for them on planet Earth. The reality is the most important person to your career, decisions about your career are made without you being in the room. Nobody asks you, you know, should we make you senior director? And by the way, most of the people who are making those decisions about you don't even know who you are. Like many of them don't even know who you are. The HR person is also a crucial piece of that. Get to know your HR person for a couple of reasons. One, they can tell you what the buzz is on you. What we don't realize is that every single person, as long as you've been in an organization three months or more, there's a buzz on you. And, you know, those buzzes can be limiting or they can be growth. So, you know, and it all depends on the organization you're in. So also knowing what looks like success, not what's on the the, the document that you fill out in your goals and objectives. What is true success me- measured? So there's things like, oh, you know, he's very detail oriented. That could be a good or a bad. In an organization where it's all about details, that's great. In an organization where they believe in vision and strategy, that's bad. And so understanding what the buzz is on you can help you shift just like you were tracking social media and understanding the buzz on your product can help you adjust the communication strategies that you have inside the organization. The other great thing is that the HR person knows where the next roles are. They're the ones usually suggesting a person from this group because of their level. And so having them in your corner, you're going to accelerate through the org faster than people who don't know HR. The other piece is once you learn about the buzz, simple things like a communication strategy. So what are the five to 10 people that need to know who I am, what I do, that have to have the right perception of me in order for me to accelerate through this organization? And it might be your direct boss. It might be your boss's boss. It could be the division that you want to get into and setting up a plan of, okay, I'm going to communicate with them once a week and find out what they care about. If they care about cats, send them cat videos every week, you know, but figuring out in the exact same way that you would be methodical about selling a product or service, you have to focus on yourself. And that's the the single biggest takeaway that I've taken on my journey is that I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that, but I learned that over time. And that's why we created Brand U to turn around and put that into a more formalized approach so people could take it away. The other thing is coaching, like executive coaching. It's insanity. The best athletes on planet earth, they have a coach and the coach just tells them, Hey, you know, move your foot slightly to the right and you'll hit more three pointers. Like the fact we are corporate athletes, the fact that we don't invest in coaches, people who make us better. It's not a deficit. Usually it's seen as a negative that you have to have a coach. It's a positive because they're helping you grow and they're giving you an objective opinion and an outside view of how you're operating. And also the best ones are talking to people in the organization. So they're getting a feel for where the org sees you and what development challenges or need states that you have that you can solve for. And they can report back and say, oh, he's fixed that. You know, I, I, I love these points. I'm trying to keep up with all the <laughs> things I want to ask as, as a follow up to it. I want to jump a little bit into the tactical side of personal development or professional development. You know, when you're dealing with different folks at different folk parts of their career, and I love this idea of like checking in on, on the buzz factor to basically you know, see kind of where you're at. And then I think that creates a, a tricky scenario, right? So you've got some companies that are, are really open and transparent. And I think there's a, a culture of kind of communicating these th- th- that feedback. And then there's, I think, other ones where, you know, that maybe the HR people 
really, really, really rub the rough edges off of this feedback. So do you think it's more important for people to hear like more raw feedback about themselves? Or do you think it, you know, or it's more this like uh, highly sanitized kind of feedback that where they're like, you know, the, the HR people kind of dance around what they're really trying to say to help. They, like, you know, what, or does that really come down to the person, I guess, like, you know, what they're ready to hear? No, it's raw feedback. I mean, if you want to be good, if you want to excel and be exceptional, it's raw feedback. Like, that's really, yeah. and you should be open to that. Look, again, I had to learn all these things. So mm-hmm. when I was at Pepsi, they sent me to an executive coach. And again, I was like, oh, they're sending me an executive coach. That means I got, you know, development stuff to do. And I walk in, first of all, I was 30 minutes late, right, to the executive coach. And the guy goes, what do you think the perception I have of you already? I was like, oh, I'm late. He's like, well, you know, it carries with it a lot of other things. From that moment on, I worked on that, not being late. But he, he said, look, the organization sent you here because they feel like you are an absent-minded professor. Great ideas, you know. You can get them through the door, you can execute them, but are they tied back to the business? Now, I knew all the stuff that I was doing was tied back to the business. For heck, with Democracy, we had the largest number selling LTO, that the history of the organization. For Gatorade, we created an additional billion-dollar business as a result of the learnings and insights that came out. But the challenge was, is I wasn't packaging up my results of my activities in a way that tied to the way that they're used to seeing results presented. And so I had to learn that. And that was, you know, that was raw, harsh feedback. And we worked on that. And I had that coach all the way through my career at Mondelez. And at every given point, you know, I'm a, look, like many, I am somewhat of a square peg constantly trying to fit into a round hole or trying to make that round hole square, you know, and usually it's that way. (laughs) And, um, and, and that comes with understanding, you know, where you're, where you could be better, where you're deficient. The other piece is where the organization, where you sit within the organization and people's per- perception is everything, man. And the other thing I think that I've learned is, look, at the end of the day, you're better off focusing on what you're really good at than trying to fix the things that you're really bad at. Because even if you bring up something that you're 10% to a 30 it's nothing compared to taking something that you're 70 to a 90. You know what I mean? And that is just, instead, as you build teams, you have to hire people who are the 90 to your 10. You know what I mean? And that's how you have to solve for some of the discrepancies. But you have to be honest with yourself of what you're not good at and then be very critical about hiring people who are specifically good at that. Because we tend to hire people who look like us or think like us because it makes us feel good. But the reality is you want to have people who are going to rub up against you uh, and challenge kind of your deficiencies and point them out to you. One of the things you, you know, you've kind of hammered on uh, is just, I guess, the, the importance of reputation. Um, and it keeps making me think about some really sage-like advice my father gave me when I was young, and it always stuck with me. And it was that this concept that you know the, the you know, one the one thing in life that can never be taken away from you is your reputation. You can give it away, but it can't be taken away. And so, you know, I think it's up to all of us in, as individuals and professionals, both in our personal lives and our professional lives, but that to be really conscious of the fact that this this buzz we're creating. Uh, and the decisions we make, you know, can give it away. And that's why we all need to operate, you know, with not just incredible integrity, uh, but just even in, in, you know, being conscious of all, all the little things that make up our, our, our brand effectively, you know, how do people interact with us? 
No, there's an employee brand, definitely. We used to talk about that as well. And I think, you know, again, in this course, we used to have you write down what is your employee brand, like, and, and then we would create a communication plan like you do for a product that's delivered about, okay, if you were, if you want to communicate to the outside world and you want to do speeches, what are the three topic areas you should talk about that support that and constantly hammering those? Or if you're going to write blog posts or if you're going to do op-eds, like, you know, and I definitely think that managing that and look, we... <laughs> I mean, most CEOs have stylists that literally manage, you know, they're, they're managed. These people are managed. And that's the thing that nobody will tell you. Yeah, I, I was sitting with a CMO last night who was just talking about how he's got a stylist now and it kind of cracks him up. It's an old, old friend of mine so, yeah, from the company, mind you, from the I company. Mean, yeah. right, no, so, exactly. People who know Carolyn Everson, I love Carolyn Everson, but, you know, she wore blue all the time. That was when she was at Facebook. That was her. That you know. So I mean, people forget that you know. But when you think about CEOs, and this is the thing that when you're very junior, you don't, you're never told, and you don't understand, and it's hard to learn. That is that again. It is so at any given time, there's only 100 CEOs at Fortune 100. 100 people, man, out of seven billion people on Earth, only 100 at any given time. That is, it, it's near. It's like getting, yeah, right. It's like getting hit by lightning, guys. So you know. Yeah. My point is, is that these guys are very manicured. I watched us take, this is what kind of opened my eyes up to a lot of this early days when I was at Ruderfin. I watched us take a senior director at one of the large pharmaceutical companies from senior director to CEO, basically managing his internal and external communications. And the power of that brand creation is huge. Now, having said that, you have to be able to execute. You have to be able to get the stuff over the finish line and get stuff done. But execution alone is not enough. Man. And so that's kind of the piece, the soft skill piece that we try to teach people or that I try to work with people on. And I think that um, you asked, you know, how do we talk very tactically? And I think that those are some of the, you know, the real simple tactics, which are really being cognizant, it's basic stuff like, okay, when I was in my, when I was very, uh, young in my career, I focused on progression, right? So there's two ways to look at it. If you love the organization, then you're going to stay there as long as you can. And that's where you see your world. And we can talk about how I kind of view tours of duty in organizations. But you as an individual, if you love the organization, you're going to want to stay there uh, you know, a long time. So then you probably fight less on title and more on cash. But if you think that the organiza- you're going to move organizations, then you fight on title. It's usually much easier to get title than it is to get cash. But the thing is, is the next move you make with a higher title, you're going to get a windfall on cash, right? And so there's yeah, yeah. the this, pre-investment. Yeah. <laughs> there's this balancing act. But then when, when I was junior, I thought to myself, every six months, I have to be progressing my career, either title or money, title or money. And I just focus on that. If, if my eight months, okay, I'm, I need to just go into my boss's office and say, here's what I want. So, uh, you know, and then when you get a little further in career, then it's usually like a year and a half, 18 months. But those are very tactical. Like, are you progressing your career along that career path that you've charted for yourself? You know, and what are the timelines and stop gates that you have to hit in order to feel like you're making the accurate progression that you need? So we, we've covered a lot around kind of you, you, how you've looked at your own personal development. I want to ask uh, one more question in this area and then move on to some other things I'm, I'm thinking about. It's about, you know, as a multi-time C-suite exec, you've obviously had many, many people work for you over the years. When you think about coaching and developing other people, is there like a, a like a, like a mark where you're like, this, you know, is everyone worthy of, you know, your coaching time or, you know, do you, is there a time when you say, look, I, I, I can't invest in this person because of X, 
you, you know what I mean? Everybody's worthy. First of all, I read a, a, a book in a Harvard Business Review. As I look at Harvard Business Review, I read in, uh, I got my first Harvard Business Review in 1999. It was, I was interviewing at Ruder Finn actually, and it was on the desk of uh, Michael Schubert, who's the creative director. And I started reading and I ended up stealing it. Uh, but uh, I never told Michael that. But Michael, yes, I stole your HBR. And in that, uh, and I have every single hard copy since then. Uh, and in that, and that became my business school education. In that, there was an article that said the mark of a great number one is where their number two goes to lead. And that has always stuck with me, which is your singular job as a leader is to make the people who work for you better than you. That's your singular job. And so, and I believe that applies to everybody who works for you. But the key in order to be able to manage your time around development and get, and everybody get the most out of your knowledge is there are a few traits that most people fall into, right? And so there's vision, executioners, right? So what do they have to do? There's people who command and control. There's other who influence. There's people who are individual contributors and those that understand span of control. And so depending on what each person wants to do with their career, you have to help them kind of through those major challenges and once like and then you have to choose what are the things i'm going to focus on today so a lot of great talent is individual contributors and what they don't realize is that you can't control everything in fact you'll never as a ceo if, you, if that's your ambition you're running a company of 110,000 people most of the decisions you're not making right so you have to be able to make three bold enough decisions sharp as you can that can push through an organization or push through a team. And you know it's like a game of telephone. By the time it reaches the end, it's not gonna be the exact message that you sent, but as long as it has the characteristics of what you tried to send, that's the most important. That's why it's super important is sharpen them as much as you can. And the other thing to realize is that you can't give people the play-by-play -play roadmap or else they never grow. So what you have to do is it's like, if you're a general, you have to say, take the hill. I'm not gonna tell you how to take the hill. You call me and you need an airstrike, I'm happy to do that, but you need to figure out how to take the hill on your own in order for you to grow. And everybody's going to take the hill differently. The only thing that matters is, did we take the hill, right? And then you can have some critique, post that about, I would have done it this way, this way, that way. But the most important is to be able to set it and forget it and then come back to it. And that's a, you know, so you, you, you begin to understand, and influence is hard. A lot of people struggle, especially in global organizations or in general with influence. And that's a unique skill set when you, you know, the reality is the president of the United States all he does is influence, right? So that's a unique skill set to have to learn. And then some people are not good at the executional component. So how do you help them focus on actually getting things over the finish line? And a lot of those basic things for execution is where I start with people is deadline setting. So tie your execution to an immovable object. So like we would always focus on events like South by Southwest. We had to execute because South by was a moving so we had to be prepared come hell or high water in order to, you know, to, to deliver against that. So those are kind of some of the tips and tricks that I've learned over time. And out of interest, is there any anyone you've met that or worked for you that you wanted to mentor, but for some reason felt you couldn't or it failed in the end? And if so, I guess why? You know, no, I don't. Look, I pride myself on the people who've worked for me. If you really look at the people who've worked for me, all of them are bigger careers than me now, you know. And so that to me makes me feel excited, you know, whether it's the president of GSK, whether it's the head of Dr. Pepper, whether it's, you know, and, you know, we all went through journeys and battles together and we learned together. And I was young, you know, there's nobody. I mean, there's people who just I, they weren't in the right role. 
You know what I mean? They weren't in the right profession. Uh, and so they ended up going and doing something else. But I've never met somebody who I didn't, who, who was tough to mentor. It's really, you have to just strip your, you have to strip back what you think of the world and understand where they are at and how they see the world and what has brought them to those decisions and ultimately where they really want to go. And then, you know, you try to coach. Now, I, I, I think you're, uh, you know, funny, I, so much of how you look at things is, is how I uh, how I like to think about them as well, which I think is, is great. Uh, I will say that I, I do. T- I have a, a threshold and I find that like when I'm if I'm, you know, my, my time is valuable. That's the one thing in this world I can't produce more of. And I'm spread very thin in a lot of places. And my my threshold is if I feel like I'm going out of my way to teach someone something or mentor them, and I can tell that they're just not listening to me, I don't yeah. mean like you know literally like multitasking, not respecting the time, like they're they're off the they're right. Off the no, I agree with that. I guess that's the that's the answer. Yeah. Which is if you're if you're not appreciative yeah. of the time I'm putting in, and if you're not putting then in, why 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 should you continue to invest it? Yeah, I'd say that's kind of my my line. Let's let's change gears for a second. I would love to talk about the. The great resignation, you know, and the it just so much stuff seems to be changing. Obviously, we spent the last couple of years talking about how the face of work was changing, and yeah, we had the video the video calls and people working remotely and all that. But now I feel like the societal shifts are really taking root, and people are really wanting to truly change the way they work, not just through the tactics and toys and location and things like that. I'd love to get your kind of take on on what you think is happening right now and. And then maybe we'll talk about, you know, what we think is next. Yeah, I think that this is something that's been bubbling up for a while and it just came to the surface. So I don't believe that this is a a result of kind of the pandemic. And I give you two pieces. So one, I already went through the great resignation in my previous world at Mondelez where we were losing in Asia 35 percent of our marketing talent year over year. So that is tough. So I went on this crusade around, you know, talent 2.0. Like, what are we going to do around fixing our talent gap? And I called up our HR people in Asia and I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find every single person in marketing. I want you to learn what they're doing. We're going to hire an agency and we're going to create case studies of all their work. And we're going to post it on LinkedIn. And they said, whoa, no, we're not. not. People will know who our talent is and then they'll poach them. I'm like, dude, we're already losing talent. It doesn't really matter. But what I want to do is I want the world, whenever anybody in Asia sees somebody who works at Mondelez, they see amazing work from every single person who works there. So they're thinking in the back of their mind, wow, this company is someplace where I can make a career. On the other side, I wanted to tell our talent that we are investing in you and showcasing you. We're growing your value. So I wanted them to think twice before they left and said, oh, maybe I'll hang out for a little bit and continue to grow my value. And then we put in you know, a lot of training and kind of future leading kind of marketing courses. But The real piece that I was trying to get across to the organization was, look, we live in a world that already shifted. Pensions left. We used to work for companies forever. But that was when employers gave a crap, right? Now we basically tell you, hey, come work for us. There's no equity. There's limited raises. And by the way, overhead walks on two feet so you can be fired at any time. You want in? And they're like, what? And then, as we live in it, what's in it for me? And that's right. And the the fact of the matter is we have to realize that the employee experience, the value creation that we deliver to employees 
is more important than anything else that we can do. Bain said that by 2030, talent will be the largest determiner of growth, bigger than big data, bigger than oil, bigger than energy, you know, and talent, we forget how important talent is. And what I also think has been amazing about what happened in the light of every horrible thing that this thing has brought to humanity broadly is that it reminded employers that their talent is more resilient than they gave them credit for. So everybody, every company, right? They're like, we need a change agent, a change agent. And they find the one person who can pull a rabbit out of the hat and potentially change the entire organization, shoot the silver bullet. When you really study companies that are truly transformational, they have a culture of change agents. Everybody believes they're change agents. Going back to like Facebook, when they began their journey of 1%, like even the janitor was like, I'm only 1% complete. You know, the whole organization believed in it. And if you can create that culture, that's what makes you a transformational organization. And we realized that overnight, our people could change the organization for the better amidst the face of something that was so horrible as a pandemic. And that just reminds me to remind employers that, man, your talent is so special, but you have to figure out how to create the value proposition for them to want to work for you, not the other way around. You know, you're lucky to have them. And so when you look at the great resignation, people are saying, I want to change the value dynamic. I want to have more perspective in my life. I want time with my family. I want to stay. I want to work from the mountains. I want to do it. Let's go. Let me figure out how to make your experience as employee that much better. And we learned that people are just as productive, whether they're sitting. I used to be told when I was coming up that you're not working if you're not inside these four walls. And in my mind, I was like, if I'm in these four walls, I'm not working because the world exists outside of here, not here. So we have to change that dynamic. Don't get me wrong. There are moments and times where teams need to come together and there are jobs and roles that can't necessarily be done at home that, you know, and we have to figure out the balance there. But the biggest strategy here is what value creation can I create that makes my employees' life better for them? And that's what's, that's what's happening right now. And the ones that are going to win, and Top Talent is saying that as well, which is scary. The ones that are going to win are those that figure out that equation and focus less on why they should be happy to work for me and more why I, you know, I should be happy to have them work for us. I love that. Uh, I just thinking to myself that I want to make sure when Camille and Collective ends up watching this, because I think, you know, this kind of spirit of this uh, proper value exchange, you know, is, is what is what the future is going to be like. I think as, uh, you know, as, as there continues to be the shift, especially around gig economy type uh, work, I feel like, you know, uh, or, you know, increase in freelancers. I was thinking earlier, things like what you talked about with you know, the, the importance of your reputation or your buzz, I think, becomes increasingly important. And I think um, this recognition that the employee or the worker, uh, is probably a better way of thinking about it, whether they're, a, you know, a super senior C-suite level executive type or a, a, a you know, subject matter expert, they're the source of the power, in my opinion, like in, in the balance moving forward. And, I, and you know, right now, it, you know, people were, uh, you know, there may be a lot of people resigning, but it's really hard to find great talent right now and I think people that are, are truly exceptional at what they do are going to be able to leverage that to great effect. And, you know, the old, uh, you know, work, work value proposition just doesn't make sense for a lot of people anymore. I mean, great people want to work with great people and on great things. And, you know, that's just about, but, you know, look, as a society, we perform the biggest whitewashing of essential workers ever. And it was interesting. It was on a, a Zoom panel 
maybe mid-pandemic where somebody brought this up and I was like, oh my God, that's what we did. We told all these workers, you are essential workers, you are essential workers, but we didn't change their pay. We didn't change their insurance. I mean, we did absolutely nothing for them. The only thing we did for them is we used them in our commercials to show how sensitive we are as organizations to essential workers, but we changed no way about how we operate with them. And to me, that's a travesty that we all have to live with. And those are the things that need to be fixed, that dynamic and that equation. You know, one of the big rideshare companies I was almost CMO of, and I went in and I talked to the leadership because I w- had done rides uh, and I shot videos of all the drivers that I was at rides with for the last week, knowing that I was going you know, to this meeting. And I said to them, I said, look, I got some videos I want to show you. I said, the first thing I would do is I would hire a chief driver officer. And they were like, well, I said, because the experience of the drivers is horrible. They hate this organization, man. And I said, at the end of the day, all it takes is drivers of the world unite and you topple. And they were like, screw the drivers. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm definitely not coming here. I, I, you know. And I didn't want to be there because anybody who sees the world from that point of view And that's why, if you think about it, many of those companies are struggling under their own weight of growth, and they haven't figured out still the right economic balance equation to truly make those businesses work in a world that's not venture-backed and pumped with cash, you know? But but that's why they see so many states fighting. Why do you think you have to walk a thousand miles to get any ride share from any airport? Because they pissed off every single person, including the drivers, and nobody would go and fight for them, right? And so that's the thing is that, again... The most important asset an organization has is their people, man. Like, and the sad thing is we we talk about organizations as they're like these amorphous things. The reality is they're just collections of people, man. Like that's all they are, you know? So it's not that crap, and I'm not using that word, not that said, said organization is slow at digital transformation. It's that for some reason, the people in that organization aren't inspired to change. But we saw that they can all do it because they were forced to. Yeah. Question for you. Shifting gears again, you have done a lot of investing. You're a co-founder of multiple investment firms. How is nurturing a startup similar to nurturing talent, if at all? It's harder. Harder? (laughs) Much harder. No, you know, it's um, the singular most important thing is to take visionary founders and get them focused on putting one foot in front of the other, right? And so, you know, I've had founders that are like, you know, my next uh, board presentation, I want it to be like Steve Jobs. I'm like, what? We're like, (laughs) we barely, we haven't even brought a check in the door. You're talking about Steve Jobs? No, we're not there yet, dude. You know? And so, but having said that, you can't thwart that vision because that's the reason why they were able to get you on board and why they're able to get people passionate and they see something that other people don't see yet. Right. And that's important, but you just have to get them focused on one foot in front of the other. Like, what are the things that need to fall in order for this to be truly successful? And usually that is, you know, getting product market fit finding real buyers for that, finding a pathway to grow buyers for that, and then finding good people to uh, surround the teams with. That's really, that's, you know, so it's, it's, it's harder because you're dealing with other facets than just the individual. And it's more emotional, to be honest with you, because you got cash in it, you know? And so, yeah, you know, you're, you know, you're thinking not more emotional, but more transactional, I should say, actually than emotional, because you have a lot invested in people, but I guess more transactional. So you're also looking at 
a very bottom line focus on how are we actually doing and how much of my money are you burning or how much of other people's money are we burning. So that's the difference. But, you know, what I said is that the one thing I've learned is that for all those people who want to invest or want to invest in early stage, which is what I came out of Mondelez to do. Um, I was living in China and I was watching WeChat grow and said, I want to invest in messaging. And then I met Michael and he told me, quit, Bonin, quit your job. So I, uh, I quit my job. I realize you did a stint in China. You're living in Shanghai. What years? Shanghai. I lived in uh, Shanghai up until 2015, maybe. So I lived there. I didn't know that. I did. I did a year in Shanghai in 2010. That's cool, man. Uh, I did. I did did Brazil for a year, India for a year, China for a year. Very cool. I I relaunched Trident in Brazil, Oreo in China, and Cadbury in India. I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to do like, hey, I'm going to move and be an expat and live someplace for. Yeah, that's yeah, that's how I felt. I wanted to go like I wanted to be. If I was saying I was a global marketer, I wanted to go, you know, live it uh, properly. So very cool. Right. So. Jumping, jumping back into this kind of like startup theme for a second. So, you, you know, you've got your firm Lockstep Ventures, which is a pretty new fund. I think was it two, two three years old tops now? Not even. Uh, Not even. Yeah. A year and a half, maybe. It was, you know, it was That's awesome. September well, last year. One of the things that really caught my eye when, when I'm researching the firm was uh, you stated that you wanted to address the, the issues that perpetuate racial inequality in the U.S., are are you uh, kind of applying that mission, developing great talent, you know, in in, in whether it's across your total career or your total portfolio, or certainly with that portfolio? But I'd I'd love to hear how the the talent development uh, aspect of that might might come through. Yeah, I mean that is a real mission project for me, and a very big passion point. Yeah, of course you're using it to develop, but that is almost the singular most important thing that we're doing, and that's what. What I appreciate about Michael Loeb's approach to startup development is he really surrounds a team with the best people that he has. You know, he has a, a shared services model where it's all part of Loeb Enterprises and he surrounds the team and kind of, you know, he joked that I stole his model, but I guess I kind of did. And that's what we try to do together now in lockstep. We're trying to do that because you're dealing with entrepreneurs that most of these guys, the crazy thing is, you know, most startups in the conventional venture space, and I believe small businesses or startups, we call it startups just because it's the tech thing, but usually they start off with money from friends and family, uh, you know, 100,000, 200,000. Most of the entrepreneurs that we're looking at and working with, they didn't have friends and family that could get them $200,000. And so they became very resilient, very quick, and have never taken money. I've never had the opportunity, to be fair, to take money. Um, and have done it all on, you know, their bootstraps. And when we get there, there's a couple of questions. One is, should they trust people since nobody's given them money before? But more importantly, if we want to get them more capital than just us, we have to shape them into something that feels more like what most investors are used to seeing. And that's where we spend a lot of time, which is not just shaping the business, but also shaping everything down from, you know, the investor PowerPoint and deck to the language that we use, to how we position the company or the, you know, the business. All of those are the pieces that we have to put the real scaffolding around to make sure that these guys are more successful. They're already successful, hopefully, you know, but even more successful when we introduce capital that can help them grow. So I would say that not only am I applying that piece, but we're trying to imply kind of, you know, an entire infrastructure around to ensure success. And look, 
we want to get to fund too, because we know that if we can deploy 50 million and it can have true economic creation, we can address the wealth, begin to address wealth gap, you know, in our little part that we can. But more importantly, if we can have, like I give an example, usually uh, one of the first companies we talked to and it was a company called Mikey Likes It. Mikey's story is pretty simple. He was in jail, got out of jail. Nobody would give him a job, which you can imagine is the toughest thing. In fact, uh, we just did a, uh, a program with the five ventures in prison uh, a week and a half ago. So we went to prison for the whole day. But he comes out, nobody will give him a job. And so he starts his own ice cream shop. And he does good at one ice cream shop, opens up a second, opens up a third, has an idea that he wants to create ice cream shops in areas where there are large prisons so that when inmate, you know, when formerly incarcerated come out, that they uh, are returning citizens, that they come out and A, they have a job, uh, but B, they don't Very go cool. back to they don't go back to the same place because, and so what that's doing is tacking recidivism. So we looked at this and said, could we turn this into the Ben and Jerry's of the future? And imagine if we could do that with that, we can actually truly tackle recidivism in a way that's sustainable and has huge systemic impact. And so that's really what we're trying to do is create big businesses that tackle really systemic problems in a very impactful way. And if we can accomplish that, we can have economic returns that change the complexion of wealth and opportunity and increase investment in these type of businesses. And at the same time, sit back and know that we've had social impact that is lasting. How many years have you been investing now? Like, you know, for, more formally, if you know what I mean. 2017, maybe. So, so, so let's, let's call it you know, four or five years in now. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be oh ship if I didn't ask uh, a classic oh ship uh, question. So you know you're clearly a brilliant, very smart uh, guy, but you're still a fairly new investor. So if you had if you got any, uh, you don't have to obviously name any specific names, but is there any oh ship stories you can kind of share about maybe a lesson you've learned where like something's gone wrong and you're like, oh that that was a big learning curve. I I would maybe approach things differently next time or or yeah wouldn't do that again. Just any warning shots that, that you know, some of our audience can, can learn from. Man, I don't even know. We don't have enough time. <laughs> You're like, yeah, you know, I, schedules. I think the one, the one thing for, early stage investors, if you're going to invest early stage and you're going to put in like 50K. And I had somebody tell me this and I didn't pay attention to them when they, when they told me before I went on this journey. The biggest challenge with early stage investment is that the likelihood of success is, is, is it's tough. And so you're probably going to lose your money. And if it is successful, you now have to match the pro rata investment. And which means that the more successful the company gets, the bigger the valuation, the more you're going to have to put in. And most early stage angel guys don't necessarily have the capital to continue. So what happens is they get squeezed on the cap table, very small. And so they took all the risk and they get a very limited upside. So just keep mm. keep that in mind. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't do it because it's an amazing thing to help companies grow and you'll make back your money if the company is successful, but just know that if you can follow on, then it's going to mean that you're going to have greater returns. I think the other that's thing, a great lesson. right? And I think the other, that's why we, we take more operating roles now to try to minimize the chance of failure with whatever limited knowledge we have. But the other piece that I really screwed up on is we get so caught up in, in equity percentages and you can't be greedy, man. And, you know, I've lost 
couple million dollars on learning this lesson. So the reality is, is sometimes you get blinded by the thought of the potential success. The reality is until it's a success, no matter how much you have of it, you still have zero. And so the the truth is, is that pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So making sure that it's equitable, but not that it's irritable, you know, to the rest of the people who are who are in that journey with you. And you can probably incentivize and inspire people to stay on the journey with you if they are also equally incentivized. So that's kind of the lesson learned. That's uh, uh, great, great, great lessons. I think particularly one about understanding some of the risks with early stage investing. I think a lot of people just aren't really aware of that. Uh, and it's a health, healthy reminder you know, about how, the, how this stuff really, really works. I think this is a great, great place to kind of jump off today. I can't tell you how much I just enjoyed uh, that chat. I know our audience will feel the same way, uh, whether they're watching it live or they're watching it on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, or even uh, listening on the audio version that, we're, that we have on all the major uh, podcast platforms. So uh, those of you that uh, want to support the show, OShip is something we just do because we think is, is fun and great and inspires us. And this is you know, our way of, of giving back uh, you know, to the community by bringing all these great people who can share their knowledge with each, uh, each and one of us. So the best thing to do to support the show is give us a like, share it on, you know, follow on any of the platforms, share it with your friends, share it on your feeds. Uh, but this particularly today, uh, great, great insights from Bob and Bo that I think um, anyone would really benefit from. Anything you want to uh, share? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Friends? I'd love to give a gift to the audience. So uh, while, I was, while I was living in China, I wrote a book called Text Me, 646-759-1837. And it's the Freakonomics of the Mobile Generation. It looks at the untalked about and undiscussed impact that mobile's had on every aspect of life, from dating to religion to parenting to memory and more. 120 interviews with folks like Chopra, Dick Costello, who at the time was CEO of Twitter, Peter Guber, owner of Dodgers of the Water, regardless. But the most important thing is, is that it allows me to begin to have a dialogue to continue these conversations. In fact, the subtitle of the book is the phone has changed your life. Let's talk about it. But of course, it's become a, a level of engagement where I talk about all types of things. I text with over 100,000 people. It tends to be very fruitful conversations, and it allows me to kind of continue the dialogue on any questions that you have. So if you text me and you put in hashtag OSHIP, I will send you a free version of the digital book. And more importantly, you will have my phone number to continue a conversation. So 646 759 one eight three seven and everybody thank you so much for taking the time out to even pay attention to what i have to say so and freddie as always it's amazing and thank you for being just such a cool human and uh we are doing the opposite i got hair you don't <laughs> you got a good look someone in the chat earlier said i need to step my 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 uh my beard game up too now so not only am i getting hair shamed i'm getting beer shamed now thanks to you so thank you you're welcome with that everyone thank you for watching our ship fall and stick around for a minute We'll see you next week. The O Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O Ship Show.